Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 44, originally recorded live on August 3rd, 2012. Rabbi Shalom discusses the values of making ethical choices without a proverbial net. Our membership renewal has begun and we do offer an out-of-town membership. If you enjoy Rabbi Shalom and Humanistic Judaism, please consider supporting us by becoming a member. Email info at kolhadash.com for more information or visit our website kolhadash.com. Imagine the scene. The party has gone cave exploring, spelunking. They've explored for many hours, they're about to head out, and all of a sudden the water level begins to rise in the cave. And the way they came in, they can no longer get out. As they scramble higher and higher trying to avoid the water, they see in the top of the cave a hole, a way out. And so they clamber towards this hole, and the first spelunker tries to get out. Now, unfortunately, he's a little, they used to say zapta, he's a little overweight. And he gets stuck in the hole. <laughs> now, fortunately or not, one of the other members of the spelunking party happens to have a stick of dynamite. And the question is, can they widen the hole? Now we understand that widening the hole will have an adverse impact on the person who is stuck in the hole. But we also understand that if nothing is done, the spelunking party will drown. But the person who's in the hole did nothing wrong. They're not evil. Can you intentionally take a life to save the lives of other people? There are a lot of scenarios like this that professors of ethics, religious figures, try to grapple with because in some ways they're designed to highlight conflicts in basic values. We would say, well, normally you can't kill an innocent person, but in this case, you almost feel like you should kill an innocent person. Well, theoretically, I could take anybody off the street, take both their kidneys, all their blood, and their heart and liver, and save lots of lives for people waiting on transplant lists. But you can't just kidnap people off the street. So how do you find that balance? How do you balance those issues? Well, maybe these scenarios are one way to explore the question. You see, ethics is about difficult situations. It's not hard to avoid stealing a police car, right, with police in it, okay? You don't get ethical credit for not doing that. What you get credit for, what it's worth grappling with is, do you steal the medicine to save your dying spouse? Those are the kind of scenarios that it's worth spending some time on, to think about what would I do, what would I not do? Another example of these ethical scenarios is the story of the runaway train. You're standing as the engineer of a train when the brakes fail, and it's going full speed, and there's a switch track ahead. And you look ahead and you see two tracks, right or left. On one track is a baby, and a baby carriage has been left there. On the other track are five escaped criminals who have left prison. Do you flip the switch? Again, you're intentionally killing them. Is the penalty for escaping jail death? No. 
Are five lives of bad people worth more than one life of a baby? Is the baby going to grow up to be Hitler? Okay, you can fill in all the details if you want to go too far. But the point is, the grapple with these scenarios is tricky. We'd like to know that there's a happy ending at the end. You know, When I was a child, you had these novels, uh, or short stories really, called Choose Your Own Adventure, where you would go through the book, and uh, if you decide to go through the right door, turn to page 7. If you want to go to the left door, turn to page 32. And flip around the book, and there was usually one happy ending. And a lot of a couple of neutral endings and a number of very bad endings. Uh, the one about the Inquisition had a lot of bad endings. But the point was that you could make choices, and there was a, there was a right ending at the end. I remember one about the Warsaw Ghetto, where you found the third milk can. There was an archivist project in the, in the ghetto. They called it the Onik Shabak group, and they saved newspapers and clippings and photographs and all kinds of things. They hid them in milk cans and they buried them in the ghetto just before the ghetto was destroyed, and we found two of those three milk cans, but we never found the third one. At the end of the Warsaw Ghetto Choose Your Own Adventure, you found the third milk can. That was the right ending. Well, real life isn't like that. But we love it to be that way. In the end, we have to do ethics without a net. We're on the tightrope, but there's no guarantee it's going to turn out. So let's think about what it would be like if, there, if it was ethics with a net, if it was a tightrope, and a safety net, closed system, no risk. Well, first of all, ethics with a net means that you have a guarantee of a happy outcome. It's an intelligently designed system. Even if you fall, in the long run, you'll be fine. You'll bounce back. You'll climb back up the ladder. You'll do it again. What is this like out there in the world of ethics? Someone is watching out for you. Someone is watching over you. There is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Jewish life, we call it Ha'olam Haba, a world to come, a place where the good are truly rewarded and the wicked are truly punished, if not in this life, certainly in the next. This is one of the stories told about that radical rabbi I mentioned in the service, Elisha ben Avuya. He saw a man follow the Torah and die, and saw another one break the Torah and live. And he said, doesn't it say in the Torah, follow these rules and live? And then the commentary in the Talmud says, well, he didn't know about Rabbi Akiva's explanation, where it says, follow the Torah and live means in the world to come. It's the post-dated promise that there will be a time when you're rewarded, it's just uh, we can't really know when that's going to be. But that's a closed system. That's a guarantee of a happy outcome. In the end, we all get our just desserts, which for some of us in the world to come might just be a meal of just dessert. That might be what we want. Okay? A second advantage to ethics with net. The system will stop what should happen next from happening. If you fall, gravity and physics are pulling you down to the concrete, and yet the net is there to save you. Translation to the world of ethics? Well, there are a lot of ways to get around human limitations. Human limitations of perception, how we can know what to do, or human limitations of ability, what we can do to impact the world. You can read the divine instructions, the manual for life. You want to know what to do? Read the book. Which book? The book. The Torah as interpreted by the authorized teaching. That's all you need to know. You can get beyond your limited knowledge, your limited perspective, to know exactly what you're supposed to do. And even more importantly, there are opportunities to ask for special assistance. It's called prayer. What's called intercessionary prayer. 
there are a whole series of styles of prayer. There's petitionary prayer where you're asking for things. There's intercessionary prayer where you're looking for interventions. There's, um, I mean, I call it flattery, but it's uh, praise prayers where you um, are saying how wonderful God has been in the past, encouraging Him to do so again in the future. There's Thanksgiving prayers. Um, I've said in the past that the trick to prayer, it works on people too, by the way, is you say nice things about them, and then you ask for something, and then you thank them in advance. Uh, so whenever you need to volunteer for something, you'll say, you're so talented and wonderful, could you please do this one thing for me? Thank you so much. It works. And if you read the prayer book, you'll see the same style, uh, hopefully being applied supernaturally. Um, or even if you're not looking for intervention from beyond, even if you're not looking for divine instructions, there are a lot of people who believe you never get what you can't handle. That the system is designed in a way that whatever God is, whatever life and tragedy is throwing at you, it's a test, you can handle it, don't worry, it'll turn out okay in the end. Whatever might happen next, you can envision, don't worry, the system will catch you in the net. Most important, if you're doing ethics with the net, if you follow the rules, you'll be okay if you fall. You try and view as close as possible to the straight and narrow. You happen to lose your balance a little bit, you deviate to the right or to the left, you fall off, fine, you land in the net. But if you jump off that wire, you're going to miss the net, you're going to crack your head open. As long as you do your best to stay on the straight and narrow, no problems. What does this mean? The system is designed well. The system will help you out if you need it. It will catch you if you fall. And all you have to do is follow the rules. But if you willfully break the rules, you jump off that wire, then you may well go splat on the ground. And by the way, if you do go splat on the ground, it must be your fault because you must have broken the rules. Remember, it's a closed system. There's no way out of that net. If you do splat, maybe you broke the rules. Maybe you strayed from the path and on some level you deserve it. Now the irony is that ethics without a net is really what we mean when we grapple with that. What I've been describing doesn't sound like ethics. It's too easy, right? If there's no risk, then what's the reward? If the solution to the spelunking situation is to pray for the water to go down, or the runaway train approach is I'm just going to let go, and God's going to choose which track the train's going to take. Well, then there's no dilemma there. You see, our sense of ethics has to do with human actions and human consequences. It's sort of like science. You know, there are people who are trying now to redefine science to include the possibility of miracles. Read Kansas, read other uh, states. And what they've tried to say is that, well, there are certain things we just can't explain. It must be miraculous. And science says, well, you can take that interpretation if you choose, but we here in science are talking about natural causes and effects. And if we don't know what the natural cause and effect is, then we'll explore and try to find out what it is. Because everything else we've explored, we found a natural cause and a natural effect. There's a comic that uh, Sam Harris, who does a series of uh, cartoons based on science group, where there's a long series of mathematical equations and another long series of mathematical equations, and in the middle it says, and then a miracle occurs. <laughs> and the professor reviewing the grad student's work says, I think you need to be more explicit here in step two. <laughs> it's just not how science works. We look for human cause, uh, we look for uh, natural cause and natural effect. Well, that's how ethics works. We look for human actions and human consequences. 
And by the way, large numbers of liberal religious people do not have confidence in miracles. They would not sit in, down in the cave and pray for the water to go down. They would not always consult religious authorities to find out exactly what they're supposed to do. They don't pray for divine revelation to tell them what to do. They make their own choices. Now, Jewish ethics is an interesting hybrid phenomenon. Because on one hand, there is absolutely a very strong tradition of emphasizing, teaching, encouraging ethical behavior as part of one sense of being part of the Jewish people, part of a tradition of Jewish learning, part of following the commandments set forth in the Torah and in rabbinic literature. You see, today we talk a lot about doing mitzvahs, or he did a mitzvah. The original meaning of mitzvah in the Hebrew is commandment, from the same root as the word for army in modern Hebrew. You take orders, you follow commandments. Well, in modern parlance, when you say doing a mitzvah, you don't think about following orders. But technically, putting on the prayer shawl, the, the talis, is a mitzvah, is a commandment. Uh, saying your prayers in the morning and the evening is a mitzvah, is a commandment. Um, helping the elderly is a commandment. Honoring your neighbor as yourself is a commandment. Honoring your mother and father is a commandment. Observing the Sabbath day with all of its rules and regulations is also, you see, it's a mix of what we would call the ethical and the ritual or the religious and the personal, or the interpersonal. Sometimes in rabbinic thought, they'll describe two kinds of obligations. Bin adam between a person and his fellow, and bin adam lemakom, between a person and above and beyond. And the challenge is, of course, that the rationale for why you do either of those is because God says so, because it's in the Torah. It's not because it produces a good society, because we've experimented with, let's see, let's try you um, uh, don't bear false witness, and you do bear false witness. And you don't commit adultery, and this group will commit adultery. And we'll see how society works better. So it hasn't been done that way. There's a reason why, of course, there's a lot of other cultures that have those rules, too. It's because society has worked better with those rules in place. That's our understanding of it. But traditionally, the reason you do it is because it says so. It's the reason why you're supposed to keep the kosher laws, even if, as Maimonides says, there isn't a rational reason behind it. You hear a lot of stories about trichinosis and the pork and so on. Maimonides knew that you could live a healthy life without following kosher laws. It's not about health, it's about following the rules. Okay? Now, there is a time when following the rules is good, it's practice. You know, we stop at a red light when there's no cars going the other way. It's good practice. But at the same time, we see a reason behind that rule, and sometimes we don't see the reason behind the rule. You see, when we look at Jewish ethics as humanists and as humanistic Jews, we have to grapple with the difference between certain ideas that are interesting to us, that are inspirational to us, that we would like to follow, and the whole system, which we may not agree with. For example, there's a marvelous ethic in the Torah. I cite it a lot because I think it's wonderful. Do not oppress the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It means do better than you experience. Not just love your neighbor as yourself or treat them like you were treated. Do better. I love that ethic. There are others that are problematic. And the system as a whole is based on an authoritarian structure that I don't accept. But the other source of Jewish ethics for us is the history of the Jewish experience. I heard a story once about a Hasidic Rebbe who would always give his coat in the winter to poor people in his town. And someone asked him, why do you keep giving your coat to poor people? And he said, well, my followers will make sure that I have a coat. They won't always 
coat to the poor, give a coat to the poor. So if I give my coat away, they'll get me a new coat. And then if I give that coat away, they'll get me another new coat. But then the poor will have a coat. That's a great story. You don't need to be following divine commandments to see that as a great example of ethical behavior. And there's the experience of Jewish exclusion and success in society. Societies that are free are better for the Jews. Societies that are tolerant are better for the Jews. Societies that guarantee personal liberties are better for the Jews. We've learned that. And we also know that those who would oppress other minority ethnic groups or religious groups may soon turn to oppress us as well. Now, we are doing ethics without it. We understand that. And on some level, Jewish ethics is a combination of with a net, without a net. There are times where it's not clear. They're expecting divine intervention, but then you turn up, turn up in a prayer book and there's plenty of divine intervention requested. We're doing ethics without a net? Well, why? But there's all those advantages to doing it with a net. Well, the first and most important point is I look around me, I look down, I don't see any net. I don't see a net there, and it's not like we have a choice. Should I do ethics with a happy ending or ethics with no guarantees? I don't see that happy ending happen. So I have to do it without a net. I can't have a guarantee. You don't get a choice about how the world works. Gravity is not optional. Death is not optional. That's a joke. In, um, in Europe, they think death is inevitable. In America, they think death is optional. Well, we'll get to that later. Not always. So given that we are doing ethics without a net, what are some of the positives? Well, the first and most important thing is the, the dignity of choice. Now, there are times we have to do what people tell us to function in society. But we are more than traffic lemmings who simply follow signals and rules when it comes to personal and ethical choices. We understand there are qualifications to our freedom. We're not as free as we thought we were 50 years ago. Because we understand how genetics has an impact on our personal choices, how our impulses are often the basis of our decision and then we rationalize later the reasons why we already chose what we chose to do. We understand that our subconscious acts and our behavior, the experiences we had before we were even aware of life around us, that are pre-memory on some level, they can have an impact in our reactions to situations, our choices. But we also know that when we consider our actions, when we consider those reactions in retrospect, we look back, it can lead to different choices in the future. You know, if you think back to a time where you maybe didn't do as well ethically as you might have, or you made a choice that you wish you had done differently. That can become something new. I wish I had acted differently can easily become, I will act differently the next time something like this comes up. I may never go spelunking again. Maybe that's the lesson. A second lesson that we learn by doing ethics without a net is that there's more than one way to do things. You know, Jewish ethics is not a monopoly on ethics. There are ethics in other cultures and traditions. There are ethics without religious tradition. There are ethics based on philosophy, based on human experience. Now, based on experimentation and surveys, you can find ethical principles. There's a lot of ways to find ethics. And even more importantly, Jews don't have the patent on ethics. We didn't invent it. You sometimes hear this, where we gave the world the Ten Commandments. We just gave it to them in Hebrew so nobody could understand it. <laughs> if anyone gave the world the Ten Commandments, it was Christianity, but put it in Greek, right? Although technically Jews translated it into Greek and the Septuagint, but <laughs> you want to try and make claims, you can do it. But the point is that there are a lot of ways to be ethical, and other cultures have interesting teachings too. And even individuals have different ways of moral reasoning. 
There was a scholar named Lawrence Kohler who spent a lot of time studying moral behavior and moral reasoning. He did a lot of surveys, and he found that the lower levels of moral reasoning, the earlier levels of moral development, were examples like following orders and acting on your self-interest. And then as you got into higher levels of moral reasoning, you came up with ideas of social contracts and getting along with your neighbors, and ultimately the highest level, according to Kohlberg, was universal principles of ethics. Surprisingly, like Kant, who also believed that you should have a universalizing ethic, which is also like the golden rule of love your neighbor as yourself, it seems to end up a very common answer. However, one of his students, his name was Carol Gilliam, pointed out that all of the subjects of his surveys and testing were men. And when you tested it differently, with a different set of population, it came out differently. Of course, they were all Western men because he was studying at a university in, I believe, Massachusetts. Well, that changes things too. It may be the case that you have a differing emphasis on the importance of personal relations or the consequence on an individual more than the universal rule. Maybe it's the case that cultural diversity changes the priorities there. Maybe you go through different stages and different orders. Maybe you have different values and different weightings. You know, they take these scenarios now. They've made philosophers leave the armchair and go out to the real world and test what they're thinking. Uh, they do these surveys where they ask people scenarios like the steel medicine to save your spouse or the runaway train or the spelunking. And they find out what different cultures will do in response to those situations. And the answers are different. Sometimes they value one principle that we would value as a second order of ethical decision. But for them, it's inconceivable to do it differently. There's one example. All cultures value loyalty to the family and supporting your family. That's a good thing. All cultures have on some level the value of treat others as you would want to be treated and have sort of an impartial sense of justice. So now you're a clerk in charge of an office and you have a job opening. Do you hire your cousin or do you hire the best qualified applicant? Well, for a culture where loyalty to the family is more important than the abstract justice, why would you ever give the job to a stranger? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas in another culture where the abstract rule is more important, you would be forbidden from giving it to your cousin because that's nepotism. You might even have a conflict of interest policy in place in the office that would prevent you from doing it because, again, the culture is supportive of that approach to moral reasoning. One other example I always find amusing, they uh, did an interesting comparison between the United Nations Global Corruption Index and which UN missions in New York City had out, uh, out, outstanding unpaid parking tickets. And it turns out that the most corrupt countries had the most outstanding parking tickets they hadn't paid. Now, because of diplomatic immunity, they can't be forced to pay them, but it was interesting that Sweden and Norway and Denmark no outstanding tickets. They barely even got any tickets. Nigeria, <laughs> uh, I mean, those are other countries that, because of their endemic corruption or, again, the weighting of values, had problems in that area. Okay, so we understand there's not one way to do things. Now, it's not necessarily anarchy. It's not like I'm saying there's no way to decide your values are better than someone else's. Maybe they are. Maybe you can make the argument that there are better consequences if you follow this system. Or society functions better if you do it this way. Or you have basic 
principles, without which you can't imagine having a sense of personal dignity. You know, for example, the role of women in society. I have no problem saying that a society that values women as equal citizens, partners, intellectuals, individuals, is ethically superior to a society that does not. Same thing with slavery. A society that has a class of slaves is less ethical, less good in fulfilling the individual um, uh, self-development of its members. I have no problem saying that. Am I being a cultural imperialist? Sure. No shame. But I also want to say that it wouldn't be ethical for me to condemn the individuals in that subordinate class, be they women or slaves or anything else, in that other society to that subordinate position. Simply because, well, I can't say what someone else should do, what's ethical for them. We can talk about it. We're just allowed to disagree. And also, more importantly, we can learn from other cultures. There are times when our culture has the problem, and we don't even see it. We need to have a proper humility when it comes to our own values. Yes, our values may be good, but they are not perfect, and they can always be improved. There's more than one way to do things. Another advantage to ethics without an end? We respond to the human condition. The most important consequences for us are how our choices affect other people, how they affect us. It's not whether we follow the rules. In Sam Harris's wonderful little piece called Letter to a Christian Nation, he has a very powerful argument about people who object to the HPV vaccine, human papillomavirus vaccine. Um, it's a vaccination that can be given to girls when they're 8, 9, 10 years old. It prevents cervical cancer if they were to get this infection, which is a sexually transmitted disease. But there are people out there who are opposed to giving this vaccination because God invented that disease and the risk of that cancer to punish them for being sexually promiscuous. And what Harris says is your preoccupation with your crazy rules of sexual promiscuity and fidelity is taking precedence over the human consequences of cancer in these kids. And from Sam Harris's perspective, and from my perspective, the consequences in real life need to be important. If the rules turn out to be in the way of saving lives, then something's got to give. Now, is it realistic to base rules on theory, on revelation? Well, sometimes yes, but often no. There are a lot of people out there who are very convinced, again, in that same sexual um, Puritan perspective that the only appropriate model of sex education is abstinence only. You should only teach the kids how important it is to be abstinent. And that has worked terribly. Very, very poor in its results. The, the evidence is out there. It just doesn't work. But again, what are you testing it on? Is it on the real-life consequences, the real-life human condition, the real-life nature of human beings? and how they work when their hormones are raging between 13 and 18? Or is it your theory, your revelation, your religious belief that's telling you what to do? You have to ask the question, what if someone did the same to me? Or someone I cared about? That, that's a basis for responding to the human condition. And that's what makes ethics without a net more successful. And the most important challenge, but also the most important benefit of ethics without a net is that we have to act. We're on this wire. We can't stand still. We have to move, and we have to move to the best of our abilities. When that train is running away, and there's a switch track there, if you don't act, that's a choice. If you're in that cave, and you have that stick of dynamite, if you don't act, that's a choice. 
If you see someone else doing something wrong and you say nothing, not to act is also to make a choice. If there is no net, if there's no guarantee of a happy ending, if there's no miraculous intervention to set everything right, well, then we need to do something. True and Wine, our founding rabbi, once wrote that justice is a human endeavor. It's going to happen. We have to do it. Now, there are guidelines to doing ethics without a net, something we've talked about in our previous classes and other lectures. You can think about three basic human needs and how they interact with each other, the need for survival, the need for personal happiness, and the need for dignity. Maybe there are times that we surrender our dignity for the sake of survival. Maybe there are times that we surrender our survival for the sake of our dignity or the sake of our happiness. If there is no happiness, then maybe survival isn't worth it. We find this balancing act all the time. But there's no one way to do it. I can't give you the book to read that's going to tell you what to do. Ethics without a net means ethics without guarantees, but also ethics with our hope of success. I want to end with the story of another rabbi who visited a town. He had a great reputation for being very wise, and of course, the students had a great reputation for being wise ones. And so one of them came up to the rabbi and held out two hands to him. He said, I have a bird in one of these hands. And that bird is either alive or it is dead. Which is it? The rabbi knew that if he said the bird was alive, then and the man would simply crush the bird and then open his hand and show him to be dead. But he also knew if he said the bird was dead, he would open his hand and the bird would fly away. So the rabbi thought for a moment and said, is the bird alive or dead? The choice is up to you. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.